Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us, letting us be part of your day. Here we are at midweek already. Plenty to talk about today. Glad you've joined our conversation. Here's what we'll be talking about. We'll have the FSA Administrator, Richard Fordyce, with us. He'll give us an update on CRP sign-up. Also, University of Illinois Ag Economist Scott Irwin joins us as we'll get his reaction to the court ruling on EPA's handling of RFS waivers. Arlen Suderman from INTL FC Stone drops by to talk markets. And Jarrett Renshaw, reporter for Reuters, out on the uh, campaign trail, will check in with us to let us know about some of the ag positions of these candidates running for president and what he's hearing out on the campaign trail, what the folks in rural America are saying and reacting to some of these uh, people running for president. So uh, we'll get that report a little bit later on. So that's what we have for you, but we're going to start things off with Todd Neely, DTN reporter. Todd, thank you for joining us. Hey, good to be here, Mike. Thanks. Hey, I want to talk about this uh, court ruling. Uh, Really you know, showing what the biofuels industry has been saying for some time now, that that EPA is not following the law in granting these waivers, and the court uh, courts have struck down really uh, three of those uh, exemptions that have been granted. It'll be interesting to see, does this change how EPA goes about granting waivers from here on out? Yeah, you know, Mike, I think that's a big question. Um you know, we've seen other court rulings, you know, most recently the Sinclair uh, ruling versus EPA in 2017, where it dealt with this very same issue on waivers. Uh, you know, the court had ruled back then that uh, basically the agency had no ability to deny waiver requests, essentially. Um, and so we saw under previous administrator Scott Pruitt and then on into the Wheeler administration of EPA, uh, they continue to say that very thing, that they have to abide by that 2017 ruling. Uh, this new ruling with the same court basically seems to be saying the very opposite. You know, one of the things that really uh, stood out in this, uh, EPA's own data has shown that, uh, you know, there were about seven small refineries, and these refineries, the small refineries are 75,000 barrels a day or less. And so there, you know, the agency had shown that there were seven of those that could have received uh, what were basically extensions of previous waivers from years prior. Uh, but we've seen EPA grant as many as 35 exemptions in just 2017 alone. Uh, you know, not having the ability to look at why those are granted and, and who they were necessarily, we don't know how many of those had, uh, uh, you know, basically had previous waivers and maybe a qualified for, for an extension. And so this definitely is going to make EPA have to go back and be really cautious on what it's doing, because if we have a number, uh, you know, seemingly quite a few out there that have received uh, exemptions and extensions uh, when they never even had waivers to begin with, I think that's a real problem. Well, we've seen the pattern. I mean, yeah, they they used the earlier court ruling to say they had to grant them, although we found out later yeah. they were doing it before that court ruling, so that really didn't fly. Right. And and then they said they were following Department of Energy recommendations. We found out that was not true. And now this court ruling, I mean, it, it, it shows a pattern here. Basically, they're doing whatever they want to do on these and not really following 
the law. I just wrote a commentary for our American Ag Network uh, newsletter for this week, basically saying, okay, you know, they're not listening to the biofuels industry. EPA is not listening to the biofuels industry. And they're, so far, they've really, they aren't, we'll see if they listen to the courts on this ruling or not. Seemingly, the only voice they would listen to or should listen to it above all else is their boss would be the president of the United States. And right. he has to, he has to step in, I would think at, here at some point and make it clear that what he wants and not just, you know, say one thing publicly and then let his agency that's in charge of it go about and do something else. I mean, that's to me where it has to be fixed right there. He, because either he's not telling them clearly enough or they're just not listening. Yeah. You know, Mike, I think you're right. I think it's probably the latter. Um, you know, I think Trump has been pretty clear, uh, where he stands on this, you know, after that August 9th announcement of the of the 31 new waivers last year that were handed out, uh, I mean, agriculture and biofuels just took a big hit on that. I mean, there are a lot of things that happened as a result, a lot of bad things. Um, and I think once the president had become aware of, of what occurred, uh, it was kind of a wake-up call. And, you know, throughout, you know, the rest of last year, uh, it seemed that Trump was, was wide open on this and, and listening um, seemed to instruct the agency to get it right, and in the end, it never did get it right. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know that at this point whether a court ruling is going to matter or what the president says is going to matter. Uh, ultimately, I think it's coming down to what the agency decides to do, you know, because even even in accounting for uh, waivers going forward in their latest proposal on the RFS, uh, you know, it didn't meet the actual, you know, gallons that were waived and so on. And so, it really leaves a lot open. Uh, you know, a lot of people still, I think, see this as a really uncertain aspect of, of the RFS, and I don't, I don't know that that's going to change anytime soon. Yeah, I said uh, basically after this court ruling, you can't blame the biofuels industry for saying "I told you so." <laughs> I mean, the court basically just, uh, you know, reinforced what the biofuels industry has been saying. All right, we're talking with DTN Absolutely. reporter Todd Neely. Todd, let's move to the uh, new waters of the U.S. rule. Uh, agriculture supporting it. Uh, other segments of uh, industry are, and the economy are, are supporting it as well. But we know some of the environmental community are opposing it, going to file legal challenges, no doubt. Uh, how do you see this playing out? Uh, to me, the big question is, we know the legal challenges are coming. Will this rule be right. allowed to be stay in place, be put in place and stay in place during the legal challenges, or do the courts put a stay on it and, uh, you know, hold it in limbo while it plays out in court? You know, the interesting aspect, Mike, uh, when you look back at the 2015 rule and you look at what courts across the country, district courts, uh, appeals courts, all these different judges were saying um, about the 2015 rule, there was a lot of questions raised about the legality of it, even as all the legal cases were starting to play out. Um, I think this way, this time around, I think that this particular rule might be a little bit different. Uh, you know, we saw with the 2015 rule that uh, the EPA at the last minute had thrown in a bunch of arbitrary distances and so on when it, when it talked about uh, which waters were considered navigable and which waters weren't. Um, and so there was a lot, uh, a lot to be desired on what the public process was on that particular rule. Um, you know, agriculture was crying foul from the beginning that, you know, its voice wasn't being heard. Um, you know, obviously this latest go around, uh, you know, I think environmentalists will probably say the same thing about the new rule that their voices weren't heard. Uh, but when you look at the new rule, it really is quite a bit more simple. 
um, it seems to really uh, emphasize that state partnership with EPA that, uh, you know, I think the Clean Water Act has, has been known for. Um, you know, and one of the interesting aspects, you look back on that 2015 rule, and it was pretty extensive. So we'll, we'll see where this goes, but I think, uh, you know, this has to let it play out, I guess. Yep, and that can take a while in the court, so we'll see how it does play out. Todd, good Absolutely. to talk with you. Thanks for being with us. Hey, yeah, thank you, Mike. Take care. Todd Neely from DTN. Up next, FSA Administrator Richard Fordyce, an update on CRP sign-up. Stay with us on AOA. The patented Pod Shatter Reduction Technology Canola Hybrids from Invigor are the perfect blend of strength and durability. Stronger pod seams and stems protect the canola seeds within while protecting you from potential yield loss. And that gives you added flexibility at harvest, even when dealing with adverse weather conditions. Shattering yield records, not pods. That's smart. Contact your local BASF seed advisor today. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. The deadline for the Conservation Reserve Program general sign-up is a month away, February 28th. Here to give us some information about that and some reminders is FSA Administrator Richard Fordyce. Richard, good to talk with you again. Tell us uh, how sign-up going. Well, you know, Mike, uh, it's good to talk to you as well, and, and sign-up is, is going well. Um, you know, it's uh, we're, we're right now in the general sign-up, um, which ran began on December 9th, and as you mentioned, will end on February 28th. Uh, that's a competitive sign-up um, where uh, landowners uh, working with their local FSA office will, will give offers, um, and then once we get those in, uh, we'll do a ranking and notify those producers if their if their offer was accepted or not. So you don't do any of those evaluations until they're the sign up's over and all of them are in. Till they're till they're all in. Given given that it's a competitive sign up, um, we uh, you know we we can monitor it really kind of at a high level here, but we wait until that till that sign up is complete. Um, We've got uh, we've got a number of opportunities or ways that we that we put those offers into our system, and and uh, generate what the cutoff is as far as the points that those offers have have garnered, and then make that selection and notify producers. The cap has been raised. You can accept more acres into the CRP. Any idea at this point how many acres you might accept? Well, we do have a lot. We do have quite a bit more room um, this time. You know, as a reminder, the last general CRP sign-up that we offered was in 2016. So, you know, um, I think uh, it's generating certainly, um, certainly a lot of interest. We didn't take a lot of offers in 2016 because we were so close to the 22 million acre cap, um, but we do have a lot of room, over five and a half million acres of room. Um, if you count uh, if you count acres that have expired or will expire by the end of the fiscal year, um, so uh, obviously a lot more capacity to take acres and to take offers uh, in this general sign up. Anything different about this sign up 
for landowners or maybe those doing it for the first time uh, making a bid? What should they know? Well, um, we're going to rank these using the the environmental benefits index where we score equally uh, the, the, the improvement to, to, to control soil erosion, improvement to water quality, and then wildlife benefits. Um, those are all scored equally. Um, as you go through the EBI, there are certain things in the EBI where producers can, um, you know, can have additional covers or do some, some additional things to garner some, some additional points. Um, but it is, it's fairly similar. There are some changes. There's, um, our state acres for wildlife enhancement practices are now under the general sign up. In the past, those have been in continuous. Um, and so uh, some changes, but uh, folks that have, uh, have, have visited about um, CRP or have existing contracts, I think we'll find the general sign up fairly similar to what we've done in the past. And, and this deadline, this February 28th deadline, is only for the general sign up. Our continuous sign up will, will go ahead and, and continue to run. The general sign-up is the one that I think a lot of your listeners will will um, kind of relate to those bigger blocks of land, um, whole fields, those types of things. Our continuous sign-up uh, or continuous CRP is more targeted to water quality issues, more targeted to the resource concern, uh, and, and that, that sign-up is going to continue. When we finish the general sign-up uh, on February 28th, we will initiate a CRP grassland sign-up where we're, we'll be taking offers on, on acres that are currently in grass, um, and, and that is in our CRP grassland sign-up. That will start March 16th um, and run for a couple of months. Um, so landowners are going to have a lot of options, Mike, um, in, to be able to participate in the Conservation Reserve Program, whether it be the general the continuous, the CRP grasslands, and then a couple of pilots that we're going to announce here fairly soon. Okay, so just in wrapping it up, Richard, so you won't assess the bids on the general CRP sign-up until they're all in and the deadline's not until February 28th. What can you tell us? Do you monitor how many are coming in and, and whether that's uh, you know a pretty robust sign-up or uh, more than uh, maybe in the past? Or can you give us any indication of what the interest level is? So there's been a lot of interest, I will say, um, and, it, and it's, it's regional a lot of times. Um, you know, we're confident that landowners are having conversations with folks in, the, in their local uh, FSA offices, you know, and so we, we're really anticipating, you know, kind of a rush as we get close to that, to that deadline. But I would say there has been a, a great deal of interest in the general sign-up this time. And you won't know how many acres you you will accept, uh, you know, uh, up to the cap uh, until they're all in, right? You can't say you think you're going to go above last time or not. You have to wait and see. Well, uh, we, did not, we didn't accept a lot of offers in 2016, again, because we were bumping up against the cap. I would anticipate that those, that those offers would, would exceed what we did in 2016 just mm -hmm. based on the fact that there wasn't much room. We've got a lot of room this time. Um, and so, you know, the anticipation is, is that, um, you know, the, the offers accepted would exceed what we did in 2016. All right, Richard, thanks a lot. Uh, we'll look forward to seeing uh, how soon after the February 28th uh, deadline will we know.
Well, so that's one of the really, that's a great question, Mike. That's one of the reasons we set the deadline at February 28th so we can notify producers relatively quickly. And, okay. you know, I'm going to say um, a few weeks maybe after the February 28th okay. deadline because folks that are, their offers are accepted, they're going to need to make the right kind of decisions on, on those acres for spring planting so that they can be prepared to do their CRP seeding um, mm-hmm. in the fall. So, We'll be we'll be notifying landowners uh, in time for them to make those decisions on those acres this spring. All right, thanks a lot, Richard. We'll talk again soon. Thank you. All right, Mike. Thank you. FSA administrator administrator Richard Fordyce with an update on the general CRP signup. All right, again that deadline is February twenty eighth. Well, joining us now is Scott Irwin, University of Illinois Ag Economist. Scott, thank you for being with us. Oh. Always glad to be here, Mike. Wanted to get your reaction to, because you follow this very closely, to the court ruling on EPA's handling of the RFS waivers, three in particular, but could this set a precedent uh, moving forward in how EPA handles this? So what do you think? Uh, On paper, this ruling uh, should um, throw a major spanner in the works of the current EPA policy on SREs because it does two things. First, it dramatically limits the firms, small, the small refineries that are eligible for the SREs. Basically, it said you had to have an SRE in 2013, 14, 15, um, continuously to be eligible starting in 2016. You have to have one going all the time. Uh, My understanding, there's only eight refineries that now qualify under that standard if that's what the EPA applies from this ruling. And then secondly, they said, um, even if you're one of the lucky eight, uh, you have to Uh, pay serious attention in your petition for economic hardship for consideration of whether your rent costs are passed through uh, in the supply chain. And the combination of those two, at least on paper, really is uh, devastating to the current EPA SRE policy. So we'll see if they listen, right? Uh, We'll see if this influences future decisions. I mean, and that's, that's the key. And again, Obviously, I'm not a lawyer, and it's some of the arguments in the ruling are very technical and complex on these points, and we know that the good lawyers uh, from the refining industry are clearly going to be going to work to push back on it. Uh, but that's, I think, a reasonable, plain text interpretation of the ruling. So now the ball is completely in the EPA's court, and we'll know a lot about how the EPA is going to react because they haven't actually yet issued any SREs for the 2019 compliance year. And so do they just blaze ahead or not? Yeah, that'll tell us, won't it? Uh, That'll tell us a lot. Scott, thanks. Wanted to get your perspective on that. Thank you very much. Uh, My pleasure. University of Illinois Ag Economist Scott Irwin. Up next, we'll talk markets with Arlen Suderman with INTL FC Stone. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA.
Time for a market check here on Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. Trading in a mix once again for the grain and oil seed sector on this Wednesday trading session. We've got minus signs in wheat, corn, positive signs in soybeans. Traders happy to see President Trump sign the U.S.-Mexico-Canada free trade deal today, but it's not expected to be a big market mover Mexico, already a leading buyer of U.S. commodities. Canada has also been booking U.S. commodities, too. USDA announced 26 million bushels of corn sold to Japan, Guatemala, Mexico, and unknown destinations in the past several days. Indicators of demand improving corn export inspections exceeding 650,000 metric tons, according to USDA. An hour into Wednesday's trading session, March corn down three quarters of a cent, three eighty five and three quarters. Chicago wheat march down five and a half at five sixty four and a quarter. Kansas City march down four and three quarters, four seventy seven and a quarter. Minneapolis spring wheat march down six and a half at five thirty five and three quarters. In soybeans, the March contract two cents higher at eight ninety seven. May nine ten and a half, up a penny and a half. For livestock at the Merck in lean hogs, the April contract down a dollar thirty at seventy dollars even per hundred weight. April live cattle steady money at one twenty seventy. Feeder cattle March contract near unchanged down two cents per hundred weight at one thirty five thirty eight. Outside markets on Wall Street, the Dow up seventy one, Nasdaq down thirteen, S and P down two, March crude oil in New York down twenty two. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. We're joined now by Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist for INTL FC Stone. Arlen, thanks for joining us. Signing day for USMCA here, of course, still has to be done in in Canada. Uh, obviously, the president will talk a lot about this. It's very key to agriculture. We've been talking about it for months and months, but it almost seems like, hey, we've already moved on past this. It's like as big as it is, we've already moved on. Well. Let's see if we still have Arlen. Arlen, are you there? I'm I'm here, Mike. Yeah. There you go. Good. Okay. Um, yeah, it'd be a much bigger issue if it had gone the other way. The markets generally expected yeah. we have USMCA did not, uh, uh, and um, the, so we got what they expected, and it's expected to move forward. But if it had been a disappointment, something to stop it in a way, that probably would have been more of a negative reaction. Uh, let's switch to uh, China. Um, we've got. The phase one trade deal signed, but now it's uh, it's waiting for implementation and waiting to see what the impact of it is. Uh, and it may be a while before we really know. It, it really may be, and that's because of the coronavirus. It's kind of all hands on deck to focus on uh, stopping the spread of coronavirus and deal with the issue there. The leadership of China is being seriously tested right now on how it handles the coronavirus. A lot of the accusations going on within China blaming the government for this, in some cases blaming the United States for it as well. Uh, but it is uh, looking like it may distract the resources away from implementation of the uh, phase one trade deal. 
China's made no statements about that. We just know that the government is really focused on that right now. That is the emergency at hand that is having a significant impact on China's economy, proving to be a real drag on on economic growth. Um, You probably heard the report, Starbucks has closed over 2,000 of its stores in China, reduced hours on others, and that's just an example of what's happening is is people are just staying home and trying to stay out of the public sector, and that's reducing commerce. And uh, it's it's a big test for the Chinese government. Well, if uh, African swine fever is any indication, I mean, they they couldn't contain that. It makes you wonder about how they can contain this. Yeah, absolutely. Now, there is some positive news out on that this morning uh, that uh, U.S. researchers have uh, developed a vaccine for African swine fever that they say has been 100% effective in early tests. And so that's the most encouraging news we have had for a long, long time. I guess encouraging uh, and discouraging at the same time. Encouraging if you're a U.S. hog producer from the standpoint that hopefully this will be able to get through the testing process and for make sure it's safe and the pr- production system set up, and et cetera, so that we can have it here hopefully before we get a case of African swine fever on our shores. But it also means that there is an end to the crisis in China at some point in the future when they get the vaccine are able to purchase sufficient volumes and get it distributed. That, that will that will take quite a bit more time, but it means it's not just unlimited demand for pork now into China going forward in the next several years. But that is a major announcement. If they do indeed have a an effective vaccine, of course, uh, having enough of it, I mean, it would take it'll take a lot. So that that'll be that issue, and as you said, just getting it to where it needs to get to. Yeah, exactly right. And, um, you know, there have been other claims in the past, but they were mostly emanating out of China, dealing with herbs and stuff, and uh, just not a lot of confidence in it. Obviously, it hasn't had much impact. Um, but this seems to have uh, acknowledgement from uh, noted scientists, and so it's it's very encouraging for U.S. hog industry. Talking with Arlen Suderman with INTL FC Stone. All right, Arlen, we're about to turn the calendar to February. Uh, what do you see as your market outlook here as we we head towards spring planning time? February is the month, obviously, when crop revenue insurance uh, levels are set for the corn and soybean crops going forward, impacting uh, some planning decisions. It's also the time when we get a better idea of South American production. And um, it looks like the early yields out of Brazil are coming in a little better than expected. We expected the best yields early and the poorest yields late, uh, but those early yields are coming in a little better than expected. So we're going to be updating our production estimates from our team in Brazil early next week, and it looks like they're going to be going up, at least modestly so. Um, and, and I think we're going to see other estimates do that as well. So that's more competition at a time when demand is still being hurt by African swine fever. Most of the corn production is, Af- is, is safrina corn, which is getting just starting getting planted now, and there's still a lot of unknown about that. But for soybeans anyway, it's looking good. Argentina, is a, February is a critical month for it. There are some risks for dryness, but when we look here in the United States, at uh, probably several million acres of corn still unharvested in the northwestern Midwest, and really some probably across the northern Midwest. And then you have to ask, when will that corn get harvested? It could be months before that happens. And what are the chances we're ever going to be able to turn around and plant it again this spring? 
So right now the risks of prevent plant to this spring in that region are uh, notably higher and uh, it's very discouraging to farmers. A couple things watching here. Uh, do the markets buy, we watched that strong basis, do markets buy much grain from the farmer? Are they letting go of it? And how many acres will the markets buy here for corn and beans as we get closer to planting time? We have seen an uptick in farmer selling as the new tax years rolled around on January 1st, but it would still be considered to be slow. Um, the third tranche of payments from the market facilitation payments has given the farmer some more money to buy some storage time. Uh, he's still hoping that uh, the phase one trade deal with China will will grant some higher prices. Um, and so as a whole, he's still holding on. We know there's a lot of low-quality corn out there that needs to move before the spring. And so that's the primary concern from a basis standpoint. When that corn moves, that could have a downward uh, impact on basis. The positive side of that is, it is we know it's taking more of that corn to get the weight gain in livestock and to get the ethanol produced. So we should, I think, have some positive surprises on the demand side as we go on through the year. Um, but basis could be vulnerable in the near term as that corn starts to move. And on acres? Acres, um, right now I'm still at 94 million. Uh, I, I was originally at 92.2, um, but as we're getting deeper into the spring, getting closer, I should say, to the spring and the weather forecasts are looking wet, not real favorable, I'm going to be considering pulling that back over the next several weeks back into the 92 to 93 million area for corn once again. On soybeans, I'm currently at 84.6 million acres. Uh, if you get those acres planted and have a favorable growing season, which right now if we get past the spring planting problems into the summer, it's looking like a favorable summer for good yields. There's not really any real reason on the supply side to rally the markets. You still need that new Chinese demand. As I said, the acres are, are going to be in doubt, though, particularly in the northwestern Midwest until we see how the spring plays out. You know, we keep, we're going to watch this all year. When do that, does that Chinese buying kick in? But we're reminded again of the seasonality here. They're going to, as market conditions prevail, it's kind of some of the wording that was in that deal. And, you know, we know this is South America's time to sell. It really is. Now, on the corn side, we're in a favorable position right now price-wise with most exportable supplies out of South America now used up. Uh, we're getting some competition out of the Black Sea right now, but that does op give us an opportunity to improve corn exports over the next several months. So we need to be able to take advantage of that. We're at a big disadvantage on the currency side with the dollar strong versus other currencies but we have less competition in the next several months until the safrina crop starts to become available once again. Soybeans, though, it's going to be very difficult to see a lot of demand um, here after the next several weeks as everything really shifts toward Brazil. And we'll see what happens with ethanol, uh, but it looks like the livestock sector, again, that's, uh, that's the big market for moving a lot of grain. I really think that uh, once we can get moving on this phase one trade deal, that if we're going to see a game changer, 
the best opportunity, and I'm going to say opportunity because we never know what's going to happen in China, but the best opportunity is if we can sell significant volumes of ethanol and distiller's grains to China and then see them take a little bit of corn as well. I don't think it'll be big volumes of corn, but if they can add a little corn to some significant volumes of ethanol and DDGs, that would certainly help the corn balance sheet, especially if we have some planting problems in the spring, and then that would also give some support to soybeans. There's a lot of ifs in there, but I think that's what we need to be watching most closely. A lot of ifs will have to come through to get that $40 billion figure. Well, that would certainly be the case, obviously, 36 and a half the first year, but uh, um, I, I think the biggest positive out of phase one long term is I was very impressed with the language on removing the non-tariff barriers, the sanitary and phytosanitary uh, restrictions that China was putting on U.S. products. And whether we hit the average of $40 billion over the next couple of years or not, you can legitimately debate. But I do think if China follows through on those things, um, that uh, that will be very beneficial long term. That is very impressive. And it sounds like we may hear something uh, fairly soon about a possible trade deal with India. We'll watch that, the administration working on that. Good to talk with you, Arlen. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Mike. Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist with INTL FC Stone. Well, the Iowa caucus coming up. A um, lot of folks running for president. What are they saying about agriculture and their positions for agriculture? We'll check in on the campaign trail with Jarrett Renshaw with Reuters. That's next on AOA. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. With the Iowa caucus fast approaching, let's uh, check in on the campaign trail with uh, Jarrett Renshaw with Reuters. He's a political reporter these days, used to be in the, uh, the, on the energy beat. I'll talk to him about that in just a moment. But, Jarrett, good to talk with you again. Um, some of the candidates running for president have uh, kind of outlined some ag positions. Others have not really gone there too much other than say they would be, you know, they're against uh, uh, big mergers and want to break some of them up, things like that. Uh, has has any of the candidates really, um, you know, broken through the clutter with their ag message? You think and uh, and hmm. uh, able to connect with some with voters in Iowa? I think the two most likely candidates come to mind are uh, Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar. I mean, Pete has been a. Uh, a in terms of kind of where he has visited, where he has set up offices, um, you know, he likes to talk about, uh, have been rural America. He's been a heavy emphasis. He's advertised uh, on, on places where rural, rural Iowa listens to. Um, they say tractor radio, I guess, is the way that the campaign calls it. Um, so I think he's put a focus on attracting them because he thinks his message will resonate. I'm not so sure that he's been, you know, super when he goes to these town halls and these things and these environments that he puts ag as a number, you know, the top issue he talks about, but he certainly makes a reference to those things. Um, so I think, you know, and, and he's a moderate and he's trying to appeal to, um, you know, uh, uh, voters who have defected um, maybe from the Democratic Party um, and went to Trump. So I, I think he sees, uh, you know, he's on Fox. Um, so I think he certainly has a strategy of going after those types of voters. 
And that Amy, obviously coming from Minnesota and the close proximity um, to Iowa, and uh, she has been, you know, certainly she is. When you see her on the trail, she seems most well versed in issues that affect the agricultural mm-hmm. community. She doesn't seem like she's faking it. She seems like she understands the issues, um, and, it, and it has a, a fair level of depth. So I think there's two people come to mind. Whether whether they, you know, that that's a successful path or not, we'll we'll find out on Monday, I guess, right? Yeah. And looking ahead, uh, the president has seemed to check to have checked a lot of boxes. Now there's still things to be done, but uh, USMCA. Uh, tra- phase one trade deal with China. We wait to see when that really kicks in and what they buy, but still uh, signing a significant uh, uh, development there and a significant accomplishment. And then uh, a new waters of the U.S. rule, which will take time as well. But these are significant things. Now, still, the, there's the issue with the RFS that hasn't been uh, fixed yet, but still some big accomplishments that the president can check in this election year. The big question is, has he done enough to shore up his base in rural America, or are there cracks that some of these uh, uh, challengers out there can take advantage of? What are you picking up on? That's a good question. I think we'll, I think we'll know a little bit about that, uh, particularly the way he messages around it. He's holding a, a, a rally in Des Moines uh, this week, maybe next week. Uh, no, this week. Um, and, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see. You know, obviously, I think uh, he... As you stated in the question, there's there's four or five things he's going to tout. Curious to where he goes in the RFS, right? Um, how how deep he goes there, and how much he claims that as a victory. I'm, I'm not so sure. That's he'll certainly reference it. He'll probably make some jokes about how you know Joni and and and, and Grassley uh, pestered him about that, and you know, so he'll make some reference to that. But I don't know how far he'll go down in terms of claiming victory on that front. I'll be curious. Um, but the other things, yeah, sure. I think you're going to see him claim victory, and I think, uh, you know, the people I talk to, I think that, that people feel like that's been a success. So ultimately, I think they come around. I, I, I'm not so sure that there's a big uh, uh, a group of voters um, that, you know, are going to go to the Democrats um, on, on that initially voted for Trump in, in Iowa. I'm not so sure the Democrats, the party, you know, can offer them or be attractive enough at the moment um, to, to get them over. So I I feel like as we sit here today, and a lot of things could change. I don't know what you sense, but I feel like Trump's good in Iowa. I think he's got a lot of stuff locked down. I, you know, I don't think that's a, I don't think it's a, a, a huge issue for him at the moment. Let's switch now. I want to get your thoughts. Go back to your days on the Energy Beat when we were. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd see you often at events, and we talk often about the RFS and some of these issues. I mean, this latest court ruling basically said EPA is mishandling their. Uh, handling of these uh, small refinery exemptions, as I've been saying, the, the the biofuels industry basically saying, we told you so, and now the courts are backing them up on this. The question is, does this change EPA's uh, approach and the way they uh, grant these exemptions moving forward? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. You know, what we have seen, and in, 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 in this is not exclusive to the Trump administration, did they cherry-pick what court cases they say are binding or what controls, right? So it would be curious to see what the EPA's reaction to this. Clearly, if they wanted to, it gives them an out. It gives them an, uh, an opportunity to say, listen, the court said we can no longer you know, grant as many um, waivers because uh, the, the, they didn't initially get them or they weren't, they weren't part of the, the group that got extensions. So I... You know, it always comes down to, you know, there's an out, there's a path for the EPA to, to, to limit the number of waivers, 
um, through through this court ruling. Um, the question, I guess, is how they chose how they choose to do it. I, my guess is that um, it won't have a big implications on on the number of waivers at the moment. Um, I think you'll see some the, the biofuel community use this as perhaps as to to maybe challenge other waivers, right? And I think, unfortunately, the way our court system works, we have these uh, you know uh, regional courts, so like they're binding in that region, but not bind other other districts. So you know, I think you're going to need a couple more rulings, but clearly the the, the blueprint for the biofuel community is laid out, right? This is they they've I think they've struck at the the core of what the argument was, and mm-hmm. if they can get some more successful rulings, I I, I think you could see a scenario where um, uh, this program, which was greatly uh, expanded under Trump, will, will will certainly be reined in significantly. Jared, good to talk with you again, and uh, safe travels out there on the campaign trail. We'll see what happens in Iowa next week. Thanks a lot. All right, Mike, take it easy. Take care. Jarrett Renshaw with Reuters. Well, that wraps it up for today. Busy program. Glad you were with us. Much more coming tomorrow. We'll take a look at uh, all the trade uh, information that's out there and the possibility of a trade deal with India. We'll see what's up with that. Hope you'll join us right here on AOA. Have a great day, everyone.